Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. I sincerely hope that this record will help to give you the knowledge and self-confidence you should have. Practice hard. Some music is just meant for adults. There are certain ideas, concepts, and maybe even sounds that you just can't get to until you've lived a certain number of days and had a certain number of experiences. Anyone can listen, of course, but not just anyone can make music like this. There's also often a different sound that comes from artists who have been making music together for a long time. They're done chasing hits or worrying about trends. Like the musical equivalent of lovers who can finish each other's sentences, these artists just seem to hit a different frequency than their young, striving counterparts. It's a rare and special thing. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I am thrilled to be talking to two friends who have been crafting soulful, thoughtful, and yes, enchanting music for over 25 years as solo artists, yes, but mostly as the co-leaders of the band Waterdeep. And truly, Lori and Don Chaffer's massive body of work, including a brand new album called Tandem, is impressive enough to warrant a deep dive conversation such as the one you are about to hear. But there is so much more to this indie rock power couple. They are cumulatively and individually songwriters, producers, authors, and teachers. Don has been writing musicals and songs for television programs, and Lori is rapidly becoming a very important producer for other artists, including recently Krista Wells and Becca Jordan. In this challenging time for artists, Don and Lori, both as Waterdeep and working apart from that group entity, are thriving. They are living out a very different-looking success story and releasing some of the best music of their impressive career. We have so much to talk about, in fact, that we have decided to make this another two-part episode. In part one, we will talk about their story, their background, and what they did that prepared them for the season in which they currently find themselves. We'll also talk about the creative and strategic challenges and benefits of working together as a couple, and the way they have diversified their musical efforts as well. In part two, we will talk in depth about the Chaffer's new album, the way they collaborate within Waterdeep, and on this project specifically, and what they have learned about listening to music better. Between their years signed to one of the coolest boutique labels in Nashville, to their current season as a viable, functioning, independent act, with all of the successes and challenges thrown on top, 
There are few people I would hold up as role models for young artists, songwriters, and producers as enthusiastically as I do Lori and Don. I'm especially excited for students to hear this. This stuff is gold for young creatives working to figure out how to make ends meet while making art that matters. And speaking of gold, a bit later we'll crank up the jukebox with a look at a trilogy of albums released by Buddy and Julie Miller, a quintessential musical power couple who have redefined a genre and become the definition of heart, soul, grace, and artistic integrity for thousands. But first, we've got a lot to talk about here with Lori and Don, so let's get going. We're going to talk about your story and your history because there's going to be a whole lot of people that have no idea who you are. Right. And then there's going to be a lot of people that are excited to go, oh my gosh, I'm catching up on some artists that I haven't heard from in a while. And then fans that have never lost track of what you do and they backed your project on Kickstarter right. and they just want to hear a little bit. We're going to try to touch on all that kind of stuff. So first, uh, I remember a guy coming up to me at Cornerstone <laughs> sometime in the mid 90s and saying, there's this kid in Kansas City, Don Chaffer, uh, you gotta listen to this. And he hands me a cassette just full of songs huh. that you had done. He was the owner of a, a coffee house. Oh, Sheldon. Sheldon. That's oh, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I take that tape and I put it in my bag or whatever. But then on that four-hour drive home from Cornerstone, I've got right. a box full of music to listen to. And one of them I pop in is that tape. And it's just you and a guitar, probably, or maybe a small yeah. ensemble. But it's just song after song after song. And so we ended up selling your indie music at True Tunes, huh. I think, before it was even Waterdeep. It was, that makes sense. Yeah. So tell me about your journey and the, what led, like, what you were doing as a young person and kind of what inspired you to uh, start doing music and what was in the soup that kind of... Uh, the primordial ooze that led you into yeah. uh, evolving as an artist first. I was in choir as a kid. We, it was a community choir that toured Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Mexico, Costa Rica. Wow. So, um, and then back to Japan a second time with a different choir. This was all in St. Louis area. And then I also played cello starting in the fourth grade. And then by the time I got to somewhere middle high school, I learned to play guitar. Like I did that because we had we'd had like in this little Presbyterian youth group we had this one woman come join us for a ski trip she played worship songs on a guitar <laughs> I was like this is awesome I could learn how to do this and then very quickly into it I figured out you could put chords together and write songs as well somewhere in there I discovered Bob Dylan and then kind of the die was cast as it were because I was off in that direction and then I would also say that a key influence was the Indigo Girls because I had friends of mine by this point, I lived in Kansas City. They sent me a cassette of the Indigo Girls self-titled record, and it was this feeling like, before then, I was Dylan, the Beatles, and, and Paul Simon were my big three, and still are. And uh, I thought, oh, I was just born in the wrong decade. And when I heard the Indigo Girls, I thought, oh, maybe there's space hope. for this. You know? Yeah, hope for you yet. As it turns out, it feels like it was kind of a, it was like a cultural head fake that lured me in. Uh, I'm happy to have been lured in, you know. But the Indigo Girls were actually also referencing clearly folk music that oh, yeah. had come out from the 60s. So what they were doing, mm -hmm. I think, was giving us permission as younger people to 
kind of pick up that same torch because yep. you know we're not that far apart in age we were we were just going oh well if they can do it right. and actually get on the radio and people like this then we can just strum our guitars and sing as well yeah and it, it in the wake of that you had Tracy Chapman and then like a, a kind of a half generation down came things like the Counting Crows you know there was a whole rootsy movement you know I mean that I think the 90s were actually defined by that to a large degree by that kind of like callback to roots mm-hmm. in a weird way I think grunge was too right like it was oh, yeah. harkening back to I think early punk but with sort of bigger hooks <laughs> well it was neil young i mean oh, that's neil true. young was doing the same thing <clears throat> in the 70s because he was the folk artist who was then identifying those roots of rock and roll but stripping it all out so there's i don't think there's punk rock without neil young and i don't think there's grunge without neil young mm. and that's why rocking in the free world becomes the, right the anthem of grunge and that's a true. neil young song so yeah. and the dna of folk and grunge it's the same thing with just different instruments really yeah totally my son had heard somewhere our son miles is 16 and our daughter ruby's 13 about to be 14 here in a few days uh that he was saying somewhere that he heard that like a rolling stone was the first punk song which i thought was an interesting oh yeah yeah that's cool um so then in college at the university of kansas i was in a little folk trio laurie was in a little folk trio and then wound up I ended up recording on some stuff that she was doing with her kind of folk trio collaborator, but he took off for Indonesia. And then we wound up forming a band in college called Hey Ruth. And so my first cassette, her first cassette, and then the band's first two cassettes are all kind of like jumbled together on this two disc thing that we still have kicking around called old stuff. So I would bet that what you were hearing was some of that. On the other hand, Right after that, I did a solo record called You Were at the Time for Love. That would have been 94, 95. Right. And then formed a band to kind of support those songs because they were fully, more fully fleshed out. And then that was Waterdeep. And then Chase Away the Birds came out in 95, I think. And Lori sang, though, on a couple of those songs. And then in short, we get married after that in 96. And then she joins the band. And so... But or I would argue that we off to the races at that point. Off to the races, yeah. And but I think, I guess I've never thought about this. I guess you didn't sing or play on my first cassette, but otherwise we've always played on every played or sung on every. That's true. Everything either of us have done. So. Sweet river. That's what I was going to get at, and, and I want to hear your story as well, Lori. You, you two were orbiting around each other from the beginning, is what I recall, but there, it seemed like you didn't actually enter into the Waterdeep thing until the second project. So tell me your perspective on what you were doing now and your background and what music was inspiring you and yeah. what you were learning and then how you entered into that whole thing. Yeah, I grew up playing piano but then uh my senior year in high school my dad i asked for a guitar for my birthday um and i got an acoustic guitar and didn't 
have any wherewithal to learn how to play it. So I thought, well, I'll go to college. Everybody plays guitar in college. I'll learn there. <laughs> I grew up in a house, too, that was like my dad was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. My brothers are accountants. There wasn't a lot of music access. The piano lessons were fabulous. But because I didn't have a ton of exposure earlier, I think I just in the back of my mind thought, well, maybe in college I can, you know, learn some of these things. So my, lo and behold, I get to college and my neighbor was learning how to play guitar too. So we helped each other learn how to play guitar. And um, part of the reason I had wanted a guitar is because I, uh, even though I loved piano, I was like, you can't really take it with you. So, and before then I had been writing just instrumentals because the thought of putting lyrics to music just felt cheesy or overwhelming. Uh, depending on the day. I was going to say, those are very different ideas, totally, cheesy and overwhelming. Totally. Yeah, especially yeah. considering your first My- <laughs> composition. Would you please share that with the audience? Yeah. So when I was like seven, I wrote a song that was, basically I kind of ripped off what my neighbor had played at a recital because <laughs> I was pretty decent at playing by ear. And I swore that my dog was crying when I played it because it was so moving. <laughs> and I called it Muffin's Tears. So, Oh, my God. Isn't, isn't that, that the, the greatest cutest? first song anybody's ever written? <laughs> Muffin's Tears? Fantastic. It should be a whole musical, it actually. Should. I think we should. I think we should do that. Anyway. Muffin's so, Tears. <laughs> so the guitar opened up lyric writing for me like I felt like oh this feels more natural you know I sing better when I play guitar than when I play piano and then I started playing with other people and was in this trio and then that's where I met Don and that yeah we were uh we crossed paths a lot back then actually the very first show I ever played in which I sang a lead was at a mall and I remember being so nervous that when I sang, it was like, your hope is round. <laughs> so it was something else. You guys have a, an interesting chemistry. It's atypical in a really cool way. Cause Lori, you've got this very muscular one. I remember the first time I saw you play at Cornerstone, you got out there and just rocked. Like you, you had a, a serious swagger to hmm. how you played and it, it definitely went against type for the Lilith Fair kind of uh, female singer-songwriter thing. So what inspired uh, that? Like, where did you get the the swagger, you think? That's really interesting. I've never heard that. Um, Inner rage? (laughs) (laughs) Just frustration with Don? Yeah, Yeah, there might be some of that. I mean, I will say I did grow up on Southern Rock, Um, I grew up in Southwest Missouri. I grew up with all boys and men. Like there were no females in my near vicinity. On a farm. On a farm. Um, So some of that I think was just a lot of masculinity rubbed off on me. Um, And maybe that's not the best way to put that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I just grew up around a lot of guys. So maybe that played in but also I loved I did love rock and roll like we, I grew up listening to a lot of Queen and a lot of um, Skinner Skinner and uh, you know I guess mm-hmm. Boston wouldn't really be considered well but, Def Leppard and all that stuff so right. but who would you say in. your primary influences are my early influences 
Well, I don't. More like later is what I'm talking about. Well, later it was like David Bowie and, um, I mean, U2, which wasn't. Right. Uh, Sinead. Oh, yeah. Was a huge, <laughs> like huge influence. You're like, oh, man. Sinead. Well, that's, that's. I mean, yeah, she goes against Tiger. Exactly. Yeah, and also, right. Linda Ronstadt was a little earlier, oh, which I always feel like Linda Ronstadt, if she pulls a throttle out, it's like, you know, you're going to oh, catch yeah. one in the face. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's you know? true. So, right. I always liked that kind of like Chrissy Hine. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I just liked all those kind of Pat Benatar. Yeah. Where As Waterdeep was coming together, you kind of went through a couple of different gears, it felt like. When do you feel like Waterdeep sort of it's established its chemistry and you were like, this is what Waterdeep is? And it's a, a duo, it's, a, it's got its own personality, it's not just, one, it's not just Don's project, with a, it's got its own thing. When do you feel like that sort of happened? Our, our last album. Yeah, I'm right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's been my project until last year. What would you say? I mean, I, I feel like part of the thing with Waterdeep has always been a struggle of figuring that exact thing out um, because the very first record we did together, Sink or Swim, I was going to do a solo album and Don was like, well, let's do a record together and we can just take turns doing songs. And there was a long time where I was kind of mad about that because I wanted to do my own project. And I feel like over over the years, there were moments where I was like, I just want to do my own thing and yet at the same time I knew what we were doing together was really enjoyable and felt really good and so I think it was a bit of a struggle to figure that out for a long time and then you add in kind of the Christian subculture that was underneath it all and where we were in that whole realm it just complicated things a lot we had lots of uh, you know discussions about those things (laughs) We've always been what? fantastic arguers as a married couple. But also, um, I would say not just the Christian subculture in general, but specifically the misogyny that you encounter in that world, I think was a major Oh yeah, huge component. I was I will say my answer to that question would have been sink or swim. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, I don't I mean I knew that you felt that way about sink or swim. I mean I ultimately feel that way that sink yeah. or swim was the beginning of Yeah feeling that and i guess maybe part of what i would say especially in light of your answer which is a good thing you went first um <laughs> is uh would have had me looking like a heel uh is that it it did bottle some of the sparks too i think be- between our two different approaches i mean i feel like oh, there yeah, were yeah. yeah i feel like she was pulling the reins back on me almost all the time throughout our <laughs> career until maybe the last couple records but what do you mean by that, pulling the reins back? Well, I just think it, I had this, I pulled together a band of like these fantastic players that could play 172 notes per minute, right? And and usually, not usually did, but I mean, 
they did that. That's that, it, not fair to say that because they all had remarkable taste. And from yeah. the beginning, I think there was there was actually really tasteful stuff done. But I guess what I'm saying is the capacity for ornamenting songs was high. And I remember on Go, on mm-hmm. Sink or Swim, mm-hmm. how you just kept going, no, I just want doom, doom, <laughs> gah. That's all I want. And Brandon, don't play anything else. And and Brandon was like, what if I do this? And I was like, ooh, that's good. You know, and Lori's like, no, can we just do doom, doom, gah. You know, like, so. Uh, anyway. But I was also really fussy. Sure. So, but yeah. I guess what I'm saying, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. And yeah. I think you were just especially in the jam band kind of mode that we were in, she was a little fish out, of, a little bit of a fish out of the water. Yeah. It took me a while to jump into the jam band thing. I resisted it for a while. And then when I finally caught on to what it, I, I just had not grown up listening to it, didn't understand it. It felt really indulgent at times and boring. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. You were and right. sometimes it was just straight up boring. Like, I'm like, I'm done with the song. Can we stop playing it, you know? Yeah. I've still got a lot more guitar solo to go on that one, though. Right. Um, and since I wasn't really playing solos, I guess, you know. But then there was a turning point where I really embraced being a rhythm guitarist, and I loved it. And that's kind of when it became super enjoyable for me and figuring out the nuances of fitting in with the kick and the bass and just the rhythm section, then I really, really loved it. So, but it was a struggle at first. It took me a little minute. And I would say though that, you know, as I ponder what, what comprised, what series of elements comprised Waterdeep in those days, I'd say that dynamic of you wanting to pull back from all that stuff and me wanting to lurch into it was if you listen to Chase Away the Birds, which is the first Waterdeep album where she's not in the band, and then you listen to Sink or Swim where she is, it's a radical difference. Yeah. Right. Even yeah. in my writing, though, it's like somehow it, uh, it was a nice chemistry, you know? Yeah, it was. So. I learned a lot about being a musician and relaxing. I think I was too uptight in a lot of ways. Good I want to push in a little bit on something you both just talked about, but then kind of moved past. And that's this idea that Lori, you felt like you had stuff you wanted to do and say, but then the structure of the Christian community you were in was keeping a lid on that because of misogynistic. Uh, I want to, I want to unpack that a little bit. Do you feel like the Christian music world was just not wanting to hear from women? Is that basically what I'm hearing there? And so you had a better likelihood of having a, a presence as a member of a band than you would have as a artist on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great summary. I mean, I think I instinctively knew that I wouldn't have been able to put that into words at the time, but, um, there was a safety in it for me. Um, and some of it, I can't tell how much was perceived. There was a safety in what was And being in a band instead oh. of doing my own thing. So even as I was fighting uh, 
and saying I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't do my own thing. I could have. He would have been fine with it if I'd, if I'd wanted to do that, if I'd pushed on it. But I think ultimately I knew that I didn't want to have to fight that battle on my own and do that on my own. So I also... So that... What? Go ahead. That, that, that misogynistic, that kind of pressure was not coming from within your circle. It was something you were imagining or perceiving from outside of it. Oh, no, and it was coming was from a- our community for sure at the time. The community that we were in at the time was, I would say, quite misogynistic. But not from within the but band. N- but not from right. the band. Yeah. No, and not right. from Dawn. So, right. well, a little bit. I mean, you me. know, the normal. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> run of the mill. Yeah, yeah. I was your average <laughs> misogynist. I was <laughs> right, right. high octane. <laughs> I, th- I do think that. Um, I mean, that was part of. So I think part of marriage is like. Uh, one friend of mine referred to it as the clash of the kingdoms, and I think to to a degree, it's like the, the, that's part of the job of getting married is like to, you know, uh, encounter the other. So that's fine. Yeah, that's normal. But. I definitely felt like in the first five years, probably, I mean, in counseling and stuff, I remember realizing that I had mommy issues and uh, misogynism baked into me also through the kind of fundamentalist theology, you know? Yeah. And some of it is you go and you play these shows and people don't even really, even though I'm the other lead singer, they're always pointed to Dawn. You start to put that together and you realize, oh, (laughs) This is, you know, a problem within the community. We're both dirty, baby. That's just the way it goes. We'll try to cut the fuses off before everything blows. And if it blows on both of us, we stand in real close by. And both of us will feel the blast. And both of us will die. Dying's overrated. It's a ticket on a train. As long as I can hold her hand, I'll know that I'm still sane. Maybe I'm an idiot for thinking that that's true. But I believe that Jesus knew when he was born and he gave me you. So now we've talked about the music, but we just kind of assumed or somehow you've ended up in this world. How did you, did you decide ahead of time that you needed to be in Christian music or how did that happen why it paid better oh i mean ultimately i think i I, that's a little bit cynical uh it did pay better and that was not nothing because we did have a five-piece band and it was like oh this seems like an economic model that will work right i don't don't think i was that calculated you weren't you weren't i wouldn't have even said for sure wouldn't have said economic model but i would have said you know oh we could maybe make this thing work we could like tour full-time at these prices you know what i mean and pri- by meaning prices, like uh, youth groups could pay more than bars could gotcha 50 bucks and all the beer you can drink versus 500 for a 100 person youth group right it's like okay and then then 500 becomes a thousand and 1200 and 1500 and it was like you go up that Christian ladder and it paid really well comparatively. And I will add the other, I remember specifically having conversations about, I think we were very innocent and naive and um, fragile. I remember we would have debates, should we play more bars? And I think a, a number of people in the band, including ourselves, were like, that would be really hard. I don't know how many nights a week we could do that and feel... 
I don't know. I think we, we weren't spiritually hardy enough or something. I think like we that, weren't. Yeah. I think we thought we weren't and we were and we were just a fragile, you but, know, kind of protective uh, fundamentalist. We were kind of in a fundamentalist phase of our sure. lives. And so what kind of church community were you a part of? Like what was that non-denominational, uh, mildly charismatic? And I would Mildly say, yeah, I mean, there was a, a fallout. Like your, hand, your hands only went this high. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? No, no, no. The hands not, went not all the way high. up here. The hands oh, went they, all the way up and people <laughs> would dance down the, uh, oh, down okay. the pews and stuff like that. But one guy in particular did this amazing <laughs> dance, kind of stepping from pew to pew. Uh, wow. It was yeah, awesome. It was, um, that's but fantastic. What I would say is that we had a distinct impression because of overt statements that Music wasn't really a quote legitimate calling, wasn't mm-hmm. one of the fivefold ministries, which is <laughs> wasn't those, legit unless you were using it for yeah. certain purposes. And so I entered into the thing oh. thinking I would be a pastor in five years once this thing ran its course. Oh, but meanwhile, underneath all that, I grew up not with none of this stuff, and you didn't really have any of this stuff either. But mm, I was I did in a, starting at about eleven. So. Yeah, but I was in a place where I was like, I didn't want to be stuck in the Christian music world. And so I was kicking and screaming the whole way through. I was just so conflicted, honestly. Mm. And then... Because listening to your music, you didn't seem... Like the lyrics right. and the style, you seemed like the kind of band that wanted to sing for everybody. Right. Yes. In terms of the work you were doing. Yeah. So it's interesting to me to... Because this is news to me that you were that stuck in the christian bubble because you always my perception was you were one of the bands that was trying to hit out and we were were. and if you'd asked us that's what we would have said i think though that we would have said it with this sort of missionary agenda is maybe not fair i mean i think we we would have called it certainly then we wouldn't have called it an agenda like we'd have called it a calling or something like that but i mean i think there was this kind of like I think we were super conflicted. I think we did want to be in the normal marketplace, but we found ourselves kind of swept into this river of Christendom. And as I say nowadays, it's kind of like, I know this, well, it's like the Hotel California. (laughs) (laughs) Once once you're in, you're never coming out. And so, and I felt pretty angry about that for a while. I guess I felt angry about a lot of things. I mean, yeah. (laughs) That's why you played such great rock and roll. That's right. That's exactly right. To the Lord who is worthy of praise And all my enemies don't know where to face The cords of death have entangled my feet I cry to you and from your temple you heard me and rescued me You reached down from his heavenly
But when you were with Squint, you know, the, the Squint model was taking artists that had a faith perspective, Sixpence, Burlap to Cashmere, Chevelle, but they were all about crossing artists out into the mainstream. So were you at that point having more of an agenda of like a little bit later in the career were you were you a little bit more competent and comfortable with the idea of playing oh, in the mainstream we well yeah like so We're, at the very beginning I mean, she's describing the not wanting to play in bars thing but that became like an open agenda to try to do even yeah, before yeah. squint i mean it was just like in the early early days where we were conflicted yeah, yeah conflicted about whether we could handle it or something like that but um because I, I would say we got over that by, I don't know, a couple years we into did. it. And then the funny thing about Squint is I think, and I mean, Steve said this to us, Taylor, Steve Taylor, who was the label head, that Waterdeep, I thought, oh, this is great. This is the best label to kind of like work our way toward the mainstream. And then he we said, thought that. we thought that. And then he said something about that Waterdeep was going to be their sort of... Um, Christian. Yeah, Christian, successful Christian band. It was so, like, what? Yeah, so yeah. we signed thinking, hey, it's our <laughs> opportunity <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to cross over. And then they did kind of seem to place yeah. us in a... I think, honestly, though, Steve could see in us a that, like I said, the naivete, the fra- yeah. fragility. Fragile spirit. Yeah, yeah that, and I think he, knew, he figured it out after, maybe after he signed us. I'd love to <laughs> ask him this question, actually, because he's... A, great friend maybe but um, I, will. I i think maybe he realized oh that's not gonna that's not gonna maybe work i can't right. send them to do an interview with rolling stone or whatever and they're gonna say secular music's bad yeah right we'll be right back after a quick break don't go anywhere we're back with this cold storage episode of the true tunes podcast Some are pushing hard, some are holding back. You know it's a shame the way some people act. The president said we shall overcome, but you gotta keep pushing on until the work is done. It's been a change, yeah, it's been a change. When you start thinking about adult music made by power couples, it's kind of hard not to think about Buddy and Julie Miller. They have each made indelible contributions as solo artists, of course, and as a duo, they have released three amazing projects and several recent singles. That nickel we dropped into the jukebox must have been valuable because it's serving up an overview of all three Buddy and Julie Miller albums for us this time on the jukebox. Buddy released three critically acclaimed solo albums in the mid and late 90s, and Julie, after releasing a handful of records for the Christian market in the early 90s, had migrated to the indie Americana scene for 1997's Blue Pony and 1999's Broken Things, both of which earned her immediate attention from devotees of great songcraft, though not much commercial recognition. As Americana music, or alt-country as some were calling it, etched itself into the musical landscape, the Millers were, to many, the genre's vanguard couple. In addition to their own records, Buddy played guitar for Steve Earle, Emmylou Harris, and others, and was increasingly in demand as a producer, while Julie's songs were getting cut by Harris and others. It don't matter where you bury me. 
their schedule finally aligned for their first joint venture, the 2001 album simply entitled Buddy and Julie Miller. The album was a rare accomplishment in that it managed to include each artist's full presence without diminishing the other in the slightest. Buddy's guitar twanged and growled, their vocals belted, slithered and howled. The songs, covers and originals were selected perfectly. In fact, if it were possible, Buddy somehow sounded more like himself with Julie singing alongside him, which she had done from time to time on his solo records to be sure, but not like this. Their harmonies were more perfect than they were flawless. This music didn't need auto-tune. It was deeply and satisfyingly analog. Julie wrote more than half of the songs, with Buddy co-writing a few, and a couple of well-chosen covers by writers like Utah Phillips, Richard Thompson, and, oh yeah, Bob Dylan, rounding out the batch. They ranged from salty, no, I'll just call them sexy love songs like You Make My Heart Beat Too Fast, to sweetly mournful ballads like That's Just How She Cries. She is smiling And she takes your hand and with a kiss she lies That's just how she cries She is dancing Up above a flame And without wings she flies That's just how she cries that's how she cries Without tears That's how she cries So no one hears Lyrically, the Millers explored and embraced the struggles of life and love including everything from the deeply spiritual to the sublimely physical, as if there were a difference in the most artfully and even theologically satisfying way. Their hard-won, confident, and yeah, adult faith was beyond cliches and truisms, and instead of writing about it, they allowed it to inform everything else they wrote about, from character studies to existential wrestling matches to heartbreak. And whether the song was a full band electrified swamp groove like Dirty Water, or just the two singers with light acoustic accompaniment like on the closer holding up the sky, the instrumentation and production was always centered on the arrangement of the song and the essence of the vocals. The overall effect, from warmly overdriven microphones and amplifiers to performances that felt truer than a gnarled old oak tree was an absolute benchmark for Americana music at the turn of the current century. Buddy and Julie Miller, both already revered on their own, crafted a stunning debut album. Cause it's 
keeps coming out like blood from a cup. It would be eight years before they released their second collaborative project, Written in Chalk, in 2009. In the preceding decade, Buddy absolutely blew up as a producer and guitarist for other artists. Julie struggled with health problems, but continued to write incredible songs. Written in Chalk, again recorded in the Miller's home studio, was even more steeped in traditional sounds than the self-titled record. Their core band, which included Chris Donahue on bass and Jay Belaros on drums, was joined by Emmylou Harris, Patty Griffin, the McCrary sisters, and even Robert Plant on a particularly fun cover of Mel Tillis's What You Gonna Do, Leroy. She said, I'm going downtown to the grocery store. We got grits in the cover, we don't need no more. Julie, who wrote eight of the songs, once again shows her range as a composer, moving from blues to country to something in the realm of swing. She gets all saucy again with the playfully randy gasoline and matches, and then comes right into one of her most brilliant and devastating songs, Don't Say Goodbye. And I hold you lifting me It's so deep and it's so wide If you look, I think you'll see Through right to the other side Take the stars down that I wished on Take the stars down from the sky Take my heart and leave me here But when you go, don't say goodbye As amazing as Buddy is as a singer, guitarist, and songwriter and producer, there's a reason he keeps getting hired as a music supervisor for major television shows and films, and as a curator and band leader for historically significant live concerts. His awareness of musical history is simply stunning. He dug deep for the album's closer, Leon Payne's unbelievably poignant The Selfishness in Man, which he sang with his former boss, Emmylou Harris. On balance, Written in Chalk was a bit darker and a bit more worn sounding than the debut, but it remains as inviting and relevant today 
as it did the day it was released. The professionals were here earlier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. And that brings us to the third in the trilogy, last year's album of the year, in my opinion, Breakdown on 20th Avenue South. Julie, who has been largely confined to the couple's home for years due to her health challenges, may have some wisdom for the rest of us when it comes to surviving cabin fever, the collapse of dreams, confronting frailty, and coming to terms with uncomfortable truths. This album moves from strength to strength, and honestly sounds even better this summer than it did last. We're all in on the breakdown now, whether we believe it or not. But in Buddy and Julie's hands, and hearts, there's a flickering beauty to be found as the flames consume stuff that we should have burned in the first place. file under adult music, Everything Is Your Fault is one of the most beautiful, funny, sad, and wonderful love songs I've ever heard. So glad they made room for another sexy tune. I'm Gonna Make You Love Me is seductive and hilarious and absolutely true on every level. It's a couple skate for people who have been together long enough to appreciate it. I'm gonna make you love me. I'm gonna make it stick. I'm gonna make you love me. When you had it and I'll make you sick. This time, Julie wrote all of the songs, every last one of them. Not surprisingly, they are amazing. From barn burners like Spittin' on Fire, to the dreamy Till the Stardust Comes Apart, Julie can shift from romance to prophetic urgency without the slightest hint of a cliché. Her hard-won faith is woven throughout her work like a golden thread, and she is not afraid to make social or even political statements when her heart moves her to. Whatever the lyric, 
whether it is sung by her or Buddy, comes through with grace and integrity. She etches her name alongside the great Americana songwriters, and with her husband, Julie Miller is an American treasure. Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Franklin, copies of the Constitution on your shelves. Hang out in the halls of National Congress. Go home and lock up your slave yourselves. I'm trading you in Corozo Box. Larry Tubman is where it starts. Sergeant of Truth and Susan Anthony. Give me somebody I can be. Buddy and Julie have also released a couple of scorching new singles this year that you have definitely heard prominently featured on our weekly Spotify mixtape. Let It Rain and Get Off of My Money are both socially and spiritually charged, taking the issue of racism head on. Another song, The Last Bridge You Will Cross, was written specifically for civil rights leader John Lewis upon his recent death. Buddy has long traced the sonic roots of the best American music back to gospel. He has celebrated those roots and often highlighted them, so this is nothing new. But this level of directness, well, desperate times call for desperate music. Go ahead, John. It's the last bridge you will ever have to cross. waits there on the other side he saw how you paid the cost so that's an extra long jukebox dive into music by the reigning power couple of americana buddy and julie are heroes of mine and have made music that while you don't have to be an adult to listen to it you can't be a kid and make stuff like this and now back to our conversation with Lori and don chaffer the king sets my feet on a firm foundation that will not, no, no, not. Oh, it will not be moved. Oh, Christ the king sets my feet on a firm So how has your vision for yourselves as musicians and artists in this way evolved since basically everything collapsed and you're still making music? You're still yeah. doing this as a, as a pair uh, collaborating. How has it evolved since then? What I would say is a couple of major plot points. In 2001, we played Main Stage at Cornerstone and you know, that's always around July 4th. 
July 27th, my mother died of leukemia. Mm. She was already really sick. We weren't even sure we were going to go play. And she was like, please don't miss this. Go, you know. And that was a weird high point for me where I'm like, here's like a fulfilled dream at one level. But at the on the other hand, I'm just devastatingly sad. I could tell my mother's dying. So she dies six months later, four months later. My dad is diagnosed with oral cancer. We're living in Wichita at that point. We move in with my dad. We nurse him back to health through this crazy 16-hour surgery where they kind of like build a tongue out of like wrist tissue and other things for him because they had to remove most of his tongue, most of his visible tongue. And then he has he was a lifelong alcoholic, got back into drinking. We finally confronted him about that, said you got to get help or we're moving out and he said he wouldn't. So we moved out and then he took his life three months later so that's we just that gets us to 2003 two weeks after he dies we find we've just bought our first house so uh and then we find out we're pregnant and then because my dad had been gone so much when i was a kid i it kind of reflexively said well then we're getting off the road i didn't want to be gone i didn't want to be on on the road with a kid so I had an inheritance from my dad. I plunged all of it into buying studio gear, built a studio, and started pr- producing records. So that's 03. That ran for, I mean, I, we still have a studio, and I still, both of us produce records now. So that was the big sea change. And I would say also that getting off the road in 2003, I remember having conversations amongst ourselves and with our bandmates and everything. And the kind of metaphor that I used with regard to the whole Christian mainstream question was it feels like we're, you know, we get down from the ladder having painted the house and we stand back to see our work and we're like, oh, we had the ladder on the wrong house. Mm. <laughs> that takes us to that point. And that, that's the point at which also then we were right then squints blowing up like, you know, they oust Steve and and then we get actually kind of mercifully dropped by them because there were other bands that got stuck. And then we started making independent music and we've made a crap ton of records since then, you know, but... Um, did that answer your question? Well, I mean, I, I yeah. now I feel like uh, you were kind of asking how how does it look now, um, and I would say I feel like a farmer in some regards with art. Like you just do the thing, and you put it out there, and you hope that you can just keep doing the thing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I feel like what I do is I write songs. Um, and I make music sometimes now I teach about it and that's fun that's been enjoyable to pour that into other people and I've been producing more now and so that's been great too to work with in particular I think a lot of women have not worked with a lot of women producers and so that's been an enjoyable way to give back and to um, lift people up you know but I, I do think there's a lot of the glory that is is gone like I don't feel the same way I felt when I was young where it's like when you're young you just want to like make it big Mm -hmm. (laughs) and now I just am like I'm happy to do the work and to keep making art and you know if people buy it that's wonderful I hope they do because I want to keep making art but um some of the some of the expectation of it is is not the same and even the aspiration like it I would almost say it like, you know, we both wanted to be huge, right? And then apart from the fact that there were all our own reasons for not being huge, right? The 
it was like culture shifted in such a way as to say, oh, update, nobody's huge anymore. <laughs> it's always funny when you go back in time. The strings won't tune and the words won't rhyme. And everything you thought you'd sent away. It shows back up and it's got something to say. You can look at the sights, you can touch and taste But they focus the lights and the sets in place They say take a deep breath and swallow your soul And don't get cute, we all know your role But even if it's only in my mind I'm not gonna be that person this time Even if it's only in my heart This is not gonna tear me apart Cause I don't care how familiar it feels Time travel isn't real This is now and I am made Music is consumed more than ever right. Yep it's just not purchased right and so and it's diffused mm -hmm. because uh people are listening to a sometimes a lot broader range of music but in, in a lot of cases they're going back and listening to the same old stuff that they've been listening to when they were 16. Mm -hmm. so it's harder to discover new stuff there's there's it's it's a big problem because we've got millions of things that are available and there's more music being released than ever before and fewer things being discovered. So yeah, you're right. There's uh, the fact that you're actually in a house and you're, you have a career, a, a life that is being paid for by music or art is making it that's huge yeah. that is what huge is now totally. <laughs> that is you totally. know that is the new huge right and, um and i will say for a season i felt sad by the fact it is hard to go from making to seeing people pay money for your material to going to not seeing them <laughs> like it's i always say if you made vacuums and people stopped paying for your vacuums you'd be pretty bummed too <laughs> but um <laughs> I mean, that's a right. stupid example but um well, but you know, like a, I always said, if if you had a gas station and then everybody figured out how to just park next to your gas station and, and get the gas from underground without paying for yeah. it, that's the thing. But with music, we've got a different way to define success. Like, right. they're not giving you money for the music, but they're giving you attention. They're giving you other, like, you're still ultimately getting some money from somewhere. It's just not coming from the sale of that music yeah and i think yeah what i'm what i have realized is even though that feels there's a little part of me that feels sad about that because it's not a vacuum it's a little piece of me that i'm putting out there that people used to value enough to spend money on i now i i have changed kind of my mentality about it and realized or i could just go ahead and do whatever it takes to make a living and do that sort of on the side i know that sounds weird because we are making a living making music but we are doing a lot of other things we're like, not making a living on water deep though we're not yeah. we're not we're making a living doing other kinds of writing and right. other kinds of um there's a freedom that comes with that because then you can just make the music without worrying about it too much you just do your thing 
And right. But it's what in the industry used to be referred to as a vanity project. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which is <laughs> right. a painful name to say out loud. So, and, and but it's also the, it's also I think the wrong term. It's it's because right. it, when you used to refer to a vanity project, that was when someone who had money would pay to put their own book out or pay to put their own record out that nobody cared right. about. True. Right. The fact is, you just put out a, a Waterdeep record that's fantastic that people do care about. They're just going to consume it over the next several years right. and you're going to get paid pennies for the streams yep. but people cared enough about it to back it on Kickstarter exactly. so it was paid for before it was done and that's exactly. not vanity yeah, yeah. you're right that's you're right. right I mean it's just it's a but if you had told me hey somewhere around a thousand people will will pull their money so you can make a record um, how you feel about that I would have said so this is in the future when I'm equivalent to Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> and I go, hey, let, I'm, then I'm talking to my younger self. Hey, let's sit down for a minute. Do you, you want a cup of tea? How are you doing? Um, right. Let me break this down for you. First of all, there's your parents. Anyway, uh, sorry, that's my dark sense of humor. Um, We're going to step away from our conversation with Lori and Don and continue it on part two coming very soon. I'm going to keep my soapbox powder dry until the conclusion of this episode, which is coming soon. But let me just leave you with this thought. In an era when entertainment culture is obsessed with youth, with being cool, with trends and fashion, I think the secret to artistic transcendence is rising above all that and leaving it behind. It's hard to do, no doubt, because commercial viability might be on the line. But this whole conversation has me thinking about my mentors and the beauty that has been passed on to me. We have got to get past this cut and paste, Instagram filtered, retro cool version of the past and discover the beauty of artistic adults. We still have some learning to do. At least I know I do. We'll be back soon with part two and more exploration of the beauty, challenge, and opportunities around making music for and as adults. that's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back with part two very shortly, so stay tuned. In fact, the best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to the email list at truetunes.com and to like our page at truetunesnow on Facebook. We'd also really appreciate it, and we think you would too, if you would find, listen, and follow our weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape. I also want to thank all of the musicians that provided tracks for this show. Our theme song is a special instrumental mix of Phil Keggy's Full Circle from the Keggy and Rex Paul album Illumination. Thank you, guys. And you can find a complete list of every song and clip posted on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. The True Tunes podcast is written and produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown, and is engineered and edited by Bruce. The contents are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401. Nashville, Tennessee 37206. 
Until next time, which will be soon, this is JJT saying stay tuned and stay true. Okay, finally. Such long I mean, answers. Is, I'm sorry. Yeah, You're going to have to chop no, and that's dice. We're, that's Bruce's job.